Nevada County was there for the beginning of what became a path-breaking law that gave families a legal avenue to get their severely mentally ill relatives into treatment. I'm talking about Laura's Law. Nick and Amanda Wilcox were the driving force behind this law adopted in 2002 after a man with serious mental illness fatally shot their daughter, Laura Wilcox, a 19-year-old volunteer at the Nevada County Mental Health Clinic. More than 30 counties in California have now adopted the law. You're listening to an hour-long program from KVMR News, Getting Help, the State of Mental Health Care. I'm Allie Lightfoot. According to 2021 numbers from the National Institute of Mental Health, there were an estimated 14.1 million adults aged 18 or older in the United States with serious mental illness. This number represents 5.5% of all U.S. adults. Young adults aged 18 to 25 years had the highest prevalence of serious mental illness at 11.4%. In 2021, of the 14 million adults with serious mental illness, only 9 million of them received treatment. What are the consequences of non-treatment? Numerous studies have reported that approximately one-third of people experiencing homelessness have a serious mental illness, mostly schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. About 40% of inmates with mental illness are in our jails and prisons. Estimated 50% of individuals with schizophrenia or bipolar attempt suicide during their lifetimes. 50% estimated mass killings are associated with serious mental illness. In this program, we'll look at the gaps in our mental health care system and explore advances in research and treatment, as well as the challenges of delivering and receiving care. We'll talk to Ernesto Alvarado of the Nevada County Mobile Crisis Team about the integration in Nevada County of public health response with law enforcement. Marie Kittle and Lael Walls of the Local Advocacy and Support Group, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, will share resources for families navigating a complicated mental health care system to get help for their loved ones. Lisa Daly, the Executive Director of the Treatment Advocacy Center, talks about the consequences of non-treatment for nearly 5 million people with serious mental illness. We'll hear from Dr. Thomas Insull, a national leader in mental health research and policy and author of Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, and Nevada County resident and KVMR radio personality, Mary St. Mary, will talk about living with a serious mental illness and her journey toward healing. Serious mental illness commonly refers to a diagnosis of psychiatric disorders, this includes bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, and schizoaffective disorders. Serious mental illness, or SMI, can also include anxiety, eating, and personality disorders if the degree of functional impairment is severe. Mary St. Mary started experiencing what she describes as magical thinking at a very young age. I went places in my dreams. I saw things in the mirror. I heard things. I just thought I was magic. And I didn't really know much better. And then I left home really young because they were super abusive and Christian, by the way. And um, I went on. I self-medicated for years. You know, it's pretty evident now, but being a teenager and living on your own and also that being 
the late 70s and the early 80s, there wasn't so much talk about this. You know, it was enough for me to get to the Hollywood Free Clinic and then later the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic to just get regular kind of health stuff. Psychosis usually accompanies episodes of extreme mania in people with bipolar 1 disorder, which Mary was eventually diagnosed with. More than half of people living with bipolar disorder experience at least one episode of psychosis over the course of their lives. So this is the tough one. This is when you know, <laughs> lest you forget that, that, you, that you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. Let's just, let's just start there. So basically, I figured out that once a decade, I go completely, I have a psychotic epi episode. And I was able to go back because I had one up here. So I, it was during the COVID. I tried to figure out what set it off. So I had got my second vax shot. Let's see. I had seen my regular doctors and I got off the temporary med that was helpful. I, you know, I guess I went in my house and I became conscious like five or six days later. And evidently, I mean, I had no, I was wearing ripped things. Um, there was obviously bodily things that happened and I was just like in it. And evidently I went out on my the balcony thing and I was like naked or something. And then I wake up and, and I had been clearly like parts of it or like, oh yeah, I was doing crossword puzzles on my legs, was I? And I was completely dehydrated. I hadn't eaten or drank or anything. All the lights were on. And, and I was like, what is happening? It, it's so weird to come out of it. Cause you're looking around like, ah, I don't like being unconscious. I don't mm -hmm. like, that feeling, I don't, I don't, in my life, I don't go around and do things that I don't know that I'm doing. And this was a five or six day kind of thing. And, and that was the big whoopty for this, for this decade. <laughs> and then I realized that's what got me into, I've been 5150. There was one of those. I remember one in the nineties. I remember one in the eighties. And then I, I was like, whoa. So I have one of these big giant things. And then I was kind of you know, I try to really look at it like, was it the shot? Was it, you know, what happened? And it's not. I'm bipolar and these things could happen. Who responds to the call when a community member is having a psychotic episode? In 2020, Nevada County created its mobile crisis team, a partnership between the sheriff's office and the behavioral health department to respond to calls related to mental health and de-escalate critical incidents that could potentially end in arrest or incarceration. Ernesto Alvarado partners with local law enforcement to respond to calls where mental illness might be a factor. He began his career as a social worker. Social work just really spoke to me, code of ethics, the idea that you're in a profession where it's, it's almost your responsibility to, to go beyond like even the policies and just to really reach out to folks and do what what is right as far as like advocating for people's people's needs and equity and equality and that just really spoke to me at the time and it still does and even moving forward with what I what I'm trying to do now I still view it as like radical social work you know because it's it's just 
it's kind of in me, you know, and even if I'm doing something different, it's still, it's still there. Ernesto has taken the training to become a police officer and is now in the final process of joining the police force. I was inspired by the deputy partners that I worked with. Not so much in the sense that, like, oh, I'm going to switch careers, I'm, I'm going to do this. It was more I was inspired on how little the rest of, like, our community really understands what they do in the sense that they are great idea escalating folks. There's some, there's some deputies that I worked with that have been doing this for so long, and they don't get the, like, the accolades that the mobile crisis team was getting, like, oh, look at this new team. They're there to, like, save the day and de-escalate and do all this stuff, which is, yeah, that's our goal, and that's what we want to do. But then I see these, these other deputies that I worked with and other Grass Valley police officers that, and, you know, Nevada City police officers and Truckee police officers, at least in our community, that are they were already doing this, you know, but it wasn't, like, this hyped-up program. It's just that's what they do. That's what you're trained to do. And so I was kind of inspired by that where like, I was like, okay, they're, they're kind of doing social work in a super different way, but they're doing social work, you know, whether they want to or not. And then on top of that, there is a, there's like special teams that they have in law enforcement. And one of those is a, like a critical incident negotiations team. And I was really drawn to that. The whole idea of being in a super intense situation where you're really trying to negotiate with the hostage or you're calling out to someone on a, you know, on a speaker, or you're really just trying to figure out a way to get that person to to do the thing that you want them to do that's safe. To try to convince someone that this idea, this thing, is, is going to be good for you. Even if it means arrest or whatnot, it's still safer than the alternative. And that really drew me to that. But not being a sworn member, there's certain situations that I'm kind of, although my partners really trust me and they allow me to do as much as I can, my safety is their concern, and I really appreciate that, and my family appreciates that. So there's times where I can't, I can't just go up to the scene. You're listening to a special KVMR program aimed at shedding some light on mental health and local resources for those of us affected. Getting help, the state of mental health care. Ernesto Alvarado is on Nevada County's mobile crisis team. With the sheriff's office, he responds to calls related to mental health in the community. What does a mental health crisis look like? It looks like a lot of different things. It can look like someone who's completely belligerent and just out of control, where they are just angry, they're violent, their 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 movements are just big. You know, I, I see it like a it's everything's big. The voice is big. The the movements are big. They seem you know, I've seen someone like a, a woman who's like 110 pounds seem like a 300-pound person because their just movements are so big and so angry and so involved in whatever they're experiencing. And then you get other cycles where someone is just so deeply embedded in their idea of, you know, persecutory type ideations where they believe everyone's out to get them or they're delusional and they and paranoid and they believe that this thing is really occurring to them. And that can range from, you know, cameras are watching me. Don't you see the cameras right there? They're right there. You know, that's, that's you know, that's spyware. You know, the, all, all kinds of whatever they... they they knew to exist prior to, and they just jumble in this this whole complex idea in their brain. But the psychosis part about it is just almost like this out of control version of that. And I see it as, um, you know, someone who who is extremely high on some like methamphetamine, for instance, can be in a psychotic breakdown. You know, they can be experiencing that psychosis look. But someone who is just untreated and not on medications can also have similar attributes where they're just Everything is, it, it's, it's this idea of grandiose, grandiosity, you know. Um, that's, where, that's where family members tend to get really 
burn out because they're they're incorporated. You know, you were doing this. You you fed me poison. You helped the FBI or the CIA get and track me. You put the chip in my brain. As you can imagine, COVID really exacerbated a significant amount of paranoia and delusions and persecutory belief systems based on, you know, the 5G thing, the vaccine. And that just went, well, now when you hear it, it's getting injected or this and that. It was just everyone that we engaged that was in psychotic breakdowns were all had the similar delusions. And then, and then all of a sudden it turned into like religious ideology where everyone was hearing voices of God and it kind of almost happened in groups, which was, I thought was really strange. And I, I could never really explain why that was happening, but so I'd be working the crisis and then I was working overtime at the hospital to do crisis assessments there. And, you know, three assessments were all, all the same delusion versions of what that person, I don't want to group them into the same because people are individuals and they have their own thoughts, but it, it, it almost like my notes, I could have copied and pasted, you know, different wow. things. And then I go to the hospital and it'd be the same thing. And I'm just like, is everyone watching the same news program or the same movie came out or pop culture reference that I'm just completely unaware of? But whatever reason, it all kind of intertwined in a weird way. But but that's the thing about psychosis because you, you deal with it a lot and then now I'm the one that's connecting all these dots. And I'm just like, <laughs> and you know, like, I mean, sim- simply I could just say, okay, it was it's something having to do with like social media and or pop culture and something that I'm not really tapped into. It's spread out because the community's small and folks know each other, and maybe that's how it happened on the most generic level. But it's almost more difficult to deal with someone who is in a psychotic breakdown who has the ability to articulate and and reprocess and regurgitate stuff that they've learned throughout their lives. I almost have the more challenging components when it's someone who's highly intellectual mm-hmm. and educated and understands the system and understands where they are. I mean, they're doing the assessment for me, really. They'll be like, well, right now you're probably thinking I'm doing this. And, and it's just so strange because they are in a psycho- psychosis, you know, because it's because they're not in their r- regulated system, you know, like like the bell curve of like normalcy for them, you know, on, way outside of that. And they know it, but they're not quite to the point where they know they're not meeting criteria for a hold. They know you can't do anything, but they're still engaged in this thing. And, and unfortunately, the way our system's set up is I have to wait for them to get worse. And that could be dangerous but I can't predict, you know, they're, 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 they're in complete control of their basic needs. They have no suicidal ideation. They don't want to harm anyone. They're just really fixated on the fact that someone's watching them and they're trying to figure out who. And you're trying to decide, well, when they do figure it out, do they have propensity for violence? Are they going to attack someone? And then you go into this whole other system that makes it impossible for people to make bulletproof decisions. And if people are on the same algorithm or they're on the same website or, or social media or they're watching the same thing on YouTube, that is going to, it's going to sink in. I mean, it sinks into all of us. I mean, I have my own thought. We all have our own individual thoughts about how the world works. And it can be, sometimes I'll be like, that's crazy. Why do you think that? And and then I'll look back and I'm like, well, it's maybe it's because of this or this. And, you know, I, I form, you try to formulate your own idea. But when you blend that in with a significant mental health issue, a, a, a diagnosis that no longer allows you to have, on the fundamental level, a practical application of human thought and the reality of the world that you exist in, that gets blurred in. And so it could be, it's very real to someone. I mean, I imagine people out there that have participated in like hallucinogenic properties or whatnot, where they can have a little bit of control over, I know that's not real, but but is it? You know, and then, and then you start thinking, that's, to me, I, I would imagine 
that experiencing something like schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar in a manic, manic state or in a paranoid state or whatnot, these thoughts are real. This is your life, and you believe this thing wholeheartedly. The, the, the sincerity is there. Marie Kittle first got involved with a local chapter of NAMI, or National Alliance on Mental Illness, when her son was diagnosed with schizophrenia. You know, we talked all the time, and he started saying all these weird things like, you know, I can hold my breath for an hour and just all kinds of things. I was really obsessed with the military and um, started telling me that he has telekinesis with other people and can read people's minds. And um, it was right after that conversation, somebody from the group home, the therapist there, called me and said, you know, we're really worried about what he's saying. We want you to come come right away, and we're going to have a meeting with the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said he needs to go to the hospital immediately. And I sat on a hard chair outside of his room in the ER, and uh, nobody spoke to me. Nobody offered me or him a meal. Sat there 24 hours, and saw how people were speaking to my son in his state and thought there's got to be something better. And right there, I vowed I don't want anybody else to have to go through this alone. Lael Walls has been a member of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, known as NAMI, for about 30 years. She currently serves as president of NAMI, Nevada County. Lael has been involved with Nevada County's implementation of Laura's Law since its inception and meets with key agencies regularly. A hospitalization is just the beginning. And there's a whole series of holds that, depending on the person and how well they are or how ill they are. So the first, the 5150s, up to 72 hours. They can be released before then if someone deems it so, who has authority. Then after that, they can be held for up to another two weeks. And then after that, they can be held for up to another month. And then after that, they can be held up to six months on what is called a temporary conservatorship. So depending, I mean, we've had NAMI families where their loved one's been in the hospital for nine weeks because they were so clearly ill, so clearly psychotic. And even, here's a fun fact, within the hospital itself, um, Civil rights are protected. So even though they're in a hospital, they cannot be forced to take medication unless they meet additional legal requirements and have what is called a Reese hearing. And there, uh, an officer of the court can order it. Uh, so just because someone goes to the hospital, that doesn't mean they even start medication. And, uh, and depending on how severe their illness is, um, it, it can be a, a real, real challenge. Mm -hmm. They'll want to get out. Their family doesn't understand how ill they are, so they support them getting out. And um, it's not uncommon for us to see families whose loved ones have had several hospitalizations before the family really understands what's going on. You are listening to an hour-long KVMR news special, Getting Help, the State of Mental Health Care. We're sharing stories from national and local leaders who are working to fight stigma, raise awareness, and advocate for change to our mental health care system. I'm Allie Lightfoot. Anisognosia, also called lack of insight, is a symptom of severe mental illness experienced by some. 
that impairs a person's ability to understand and perceive their illness. Without awareness of their illness, more than 50% of those experiencing psychosis refuse treatment. Lisa Daly is the executive director of the Treatment Advocacy Center. She's leading an organization that works to improve state and federal civil commitment laws and promote evidence-based policies to positively affect those with severe mental illness. Say you're um, a person with an adult child, um, you know, somebody that like in their 20s, which is a, a time when this kind of illness is commonly likely to appear for the first time. You, you can certainly try to persuade somebody that they need to be checked out, that they, you know, should go in and be evaluated, that they should report symptoms, et cetera. And that obviously is, it's great if that can happen, but it's, it's also kind of the only option um, at that earlier point, um, you know, until somebody is really behaving in a way that kind of reveals that they are posing a danger to themselves or to someone else within, you know, however that's defined within the state. And there's, you know, obviously every state defines that a bit differently. There really isn't a way to compel someone who is an adult um, that they need to go in and be evaluated. So from the perspective of a caregiver, you know, you you really are in a position of trying to persuade somebody that they should go in and be treated for a condition that the person doesn't perceive that they have. Uh, and a lot of times when you consider that an illness like schizophrenia, for example, can have as a symptom, you know, part of what is um, incorporated in that illness is delusions and hallucinations. And it's, it can be very easy for the caregiver to become incorporated into those delusions. So the fact that they're continue, you know, trying to persuade somebody to seek treatment who doesn't think that they need treatment can really create a, a very hostile situation where the individual begins to doubt the motives of the person that is trying to get them to seek care. Uh, it just can be extraordinarily difficult and the options are very limited until a person meets criteria they really can be functioning at a very low level or they can be very symptomatic but still not meeting criteria for intervention, which really leaves the caregivers in a, a very difficult position where they're, they're, you know, living with somebody who is in, or living or trying to provide support for somebody who is increasingly symptomatic and difficult to, um, you know, kind of navigate with the, the world with, but really without any option other than you can maybe persuade somebody to try to be evaluated or to go in for care. And of course, that's assuming that if they did go in and be evaluated, that, you know, it would actually lead to meaningful, successful treatment, which is not necessarily a given either. In the state of California and many other states, the behavioral health and agencies exclude the families from the treatment team. Because of HIPAA, they aren't allowed to talk to doctors. They may not even know when their loved one is being released from a hospital and they can't pass on important information to clinicians who are providing care. Often they're put in a position where they're calling the cops on their own kids or filing restraining orders just so that they can get treatment. NAMI leaders Lael Walls and Marie Kittle talk about how this impacts family members who are navigating the system. Hmm. We have to acknowledge the science that these are major, major medical conditions. Uh, so that's one of my wishes. And the other thing is um, mental health. When you're put in a psychiatric hospital um, and you're 18 or older, those HIPAA laws are really rigid. 
you know, you can't go into a psychiatric facility, even if you say, but I'm his mom, but I'm the husband. It, it's just a brick wall there, unless that person gives you any kind of release. It's so different than if you went to Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital and your loved one was having a heart attack, you know, the doctors would communicate. They would want to know what was, what happened? Mm -hmm. Why did they have this happen? Did you see this happening, that happening? All of these different symptoms. When a psychiatric emergency happens, people don't talk yes. to the loved ones that are with them all the time. And let me just back up to say the absolute absurd irony to me of all of this is that you're asking someone whose brain and mind isn't working right to be the source of truth, if you will, for the, the professionals to understand. So they're getting a clearly distorted picture potentially. A highlight, an example for me is when someone's discharged and they haven't allowed the family to talk to the hospital, they may uh, be discharged. The family doesn't know they're being discharged, and they can be discharged, and the family's not there. There's no, I mean, there's no connection. Or uh, maybe the family is so traumatized that right now they've made plans. They want the person to go somewhere else uh, because maybe they've been battered themselves because, you know, the person most likely to get hurt outside the person themselves who's ill is the mother. So um, moms sometimes need to be safe for a little bit before the discharge occurs back to the mom. Mm -hmm. And we've had uh, people just discharged to nowhere. I mean, we had one, the Kmart Shopping Center. They were discharged to the Kmart Shopping Center because that's where the person wanted to go. Mobile crisis team member Ernesto Alvarado. You work in these treatment facilities and you see folks that have been in there for a long time, someone who's in their 60s, and you see, you see their families that are, that are not involved whatsoever, and you, and you kind of wonder well, how lonely it must be. But then I scale it backwards and you start seeing all the things that got them to this place. You start reading history about them, some of the dangerous situations they put their families in, or some of the things that have occurred. And you start realizing that families aren't involved, not because of a, a simple desire to just want to remove themselves from the complications of mental health. Like they, they just don't want to be involved anymore. It's emotionally taxing. They're, they're experiencing their own traumatic situation over and over. And, and, and that, that is a really harmful thing to experience, you know, over and over again. Even though this is your loved one, you want nothing but the best for them. But if you're consistently being placed in delusions or paranoia and you're consistently the bad person, that, that can start degrading your, your ability, your emotional ability to keep helping. And so I've seen it from the beginning where I, I go out and do an assessment on a kiddo. And you're looking at a kiddo and they're like nine, nine or 10. And I don't, I don't feel like it's jaded. I'm just, I get this concern and this worry, like this lump in my throat where I'm like, I, I'm like, man, I know your future if, if it keeps going the way it has been going because I've seen you 
a version of you in the end and it doesn't look good you know and you want to just like have a solution for the family like well if you get connected with this right now if you get connected with the support system now it's going to be okay but but you don't really know you know you you can connect folks with resources and that's really all we can do at that point and hoping that one of those resources is going to click and it's going to work for that family and it's going to give them the tools that they need to be able to support their child in a way that's specifically unique to that child whether they're young adults or children and the young adult section is 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 hard because you get someone who has their own rights they have their own self-determination they no longer have to adhere to what parents want them to do parents can't force it they have no say they can provide someone like me information and background and that's always extremely valuable but at the end of the day it's not really their choice you have a population and demographic of folks that exist in a social construct where we have these very definitive rules socially for ourselves. What is a successful life? What is successful living? Um, having a place of residence? All of those things. And then you mix that in with folks that don't adhere to that. And they also don't adhere to the, the program of, of medication. And that's a whole other conversation that we could speak on for hours and hours of appropriate medication, inappropriate medication, over-medication, how that makes that individual feel. You know, folks like us, we can talk about, well, why aren't they just taking their meds? You know, they wouldn't be acting this way and behaving this way in public and putting themselves in danger and on and on if they just took their meds. And I'm always in situations where I really wish that that person was taking their medication because I wouldn't, we wouldn't have the call for service. We wouldn't have to strategize how we're going to effectively get this person in our patrol unit and take them to the hospital without harming them or harming us. And, and it's, it's complex and it's always complex, but if they just took their meds, but if people that aren't associated with it or have family members or whatnot, the complications of figuring out the right medication, the complex system that's set in place with pharmacology and insurance providers where one day this insurance provider is, willingly accepting this medication and they will gladly pay for it and your share of cost is nothing because you're doing this and this and that's the ticket that's the golden ticket right there and it wins and you and, you, and you're good and you're you're like okay the side effects aren't so bad everything's working all right and then your insurance tweaks a little bit or you get you know a different a or b or whatever it is or medical just doesn't want to pay for it or your insurance provider if you're lucky a private insurance they're like, nope, we don't want that on our list anymore. But this generic version or this brand name version, it's the same thing. It's the same compound. Don't worry about it. No, it's not. You know, there's like um, the easiest one for me to come to mind is like Depakote and Devilaprex. Devilaprex is the generic version. Sometimes Devilaprex works on folks and Depakote is like has super hardcore adverse reactions. And then, you, and then it's vice versa. And it, every person has a different brain structure, a molecular system, their neurons, everything, their synapses, everything works differently. And so you're trying to, fix it with this pill and that person it doesn't work on them and so they don't want to take it anymore they don't trust it or they're so far in the delusions where they think that it's a whole it's a conspiracy and so that whole train of thought is there and then you put them in the public system where they're out and they're exposed you know and so they're watched all the time and you get a community member that doesn't like that someone is talking to themselves and really loudly and they're unbathed hygienic issues are, are obvious they seem like they're disturbed and distressed and now they're in the community and it's making that person feel uncomfortable and they call us and they don't understand the system they don't understand that there's really like two solutions on like a legal parameter which is WIC 5150 or arrest 
And if they don't meet criteria and it's not appropriate for them to go to a psychiatric facility, but they're breaking the law, then they get arrested because that solution needs to exist because that person is putting themselves in a vulnerable position where they're dangerous to themselves and or my school of thought always, that person might be in danger for their own safety because they're acting abnormally because of their mental health issue. They're not really paying attention to their own safety. They're walking in and out of the road. They don't intend to hurt themselves, but they're not they're the indifference to their own personal safety or they're just saying things to the wrong person, the wrong human being that's going to engage with them in an aggressive and violent manner. So you have to think about all those things. And that's where that intersectionally comes into play because you have all all these different existing pieces in this one person's life. And they're not in control of all those other pieces. All they're controlling is that they may or may not choose to agree with the, the fact that they have a mental health issue. And they may or may not choose to take the medication or seek treatment for it. And to try to, to, try to resolve that mm-hmm. on, on like a systems level, now we're talking about the systems that exist on whether it's a local government, city government, a behavioral health component, a vendor that exists in our community. And we have great people that work in all of those facets, law enforcement, emergency responders, firefighters, teachers, you know, all these components, you know, community members in the church, community members and store owners that are trying to do their thing, you know, try to do grassroots, um, you know, families, families Mm -hmm. is the first one. No matter what that entity is, you have this really limited system on how to resolve an issue. And the issue is, at what point, what line are we going to tell another human being what they can and cannot do? And that's a very, I mean, that's fundamental in our in our rights in this country. You know, you're talking about the amendments now, and you're talking about specifically the Fourth Amendment of, like, we we exist in this free situation because we have the right to dictate that. But then where's that line? When someone is now deemed dangerous, we do, legally we can define that that line for the most part. It's not clear, but it's there. But then you get on a mental health capacity where they're doing these things that could be illegal and are illegal on a very literal um, definition. But then they're also experiencing all these mental health issues. So now you get things like, you know, um, AOT, you know, and then and, and for a very valid reason they exist. But who makes that determination? And it starts with people like me. You know, I mean, we put them on the hold first. Law enforcement does it first. You know, we make that application to have a psychiatric facility review it, to accept that person, to get placed, and then how long are they going to hold them? Laura's Law was created to provide community-based assisted outpatient treatment, or AOT, to a small population of individuals who meet strict legal criteria and who, as a result of their mental illness, are unable to voluntarily access community mental health services. It was intended to provide a path for mandated and court-ordered treatment. Lael Walls of NAMI describes how the law is supposed to work. The key thing that I really want everybody to hear about Laura's Law is that it's not a criminal process. Our jails are so full across this country. Deinstitutionalization really ended up with unintended institutionalization in the criminal justice system. So when you talk about rights, it just doesn't make any sense to us because so many of our loved ones have lost their rights through the criminal justice system. It's heartbreaking and wrong. I will say that. 
So Laura's Law is a civil process. If someone doesn't do well and they're in Laura's Law, the teeth is not jail. The teeth is hospitalization. And, um, and we have people who don't want to be hospitalized. Being hospitalized isn't necessarily a wonderful thing sometimes or where you want to be. It, you know, who wants to go to a psych hospital if you don't have to? So it's a deterrent. And it's non-criminal. So the punishment is more treatment. You lean in and help more. And isn't that the humanitarian way to be? Dr. Thomas Insel is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist and has been a national leader in mental health research, policy, and technology. From 2002 to 2015, he served as director of the National Institute of Mental Health. He co-founded Vanna Health in 2022 and currently serves as its executive chair. In 2019, Dr. Insel was a special advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom and chair of the board of the Steinberg Institute in Sacramento. Dr. Insel reframes the mental health crisis not just as a medical problem, but a long-needed progress toward a more inclusive, more compassionate, and healthier society. Here, Dr. Insel describes the concerns expressed to him by California Governor Gavin Newsom about the state of our mental health care system in California. He said that when he had been mayor of San Francisco, uh, he dealt a lot with homelessness and uh, crowding in the jail. And it wasn't until after he got out of office that he realized that both of those huge social problems were sharing a common but rather subtle cause, undisclosed cause. And that was uh, untreated serious mental illness, meaning that people with psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia, severe bipolar illness, severe depression, were the ones who were ending up homeless or ending up incarcerated um, because they weren't in care. They weren't getting the care they needed. And so his his challenge to me was, as he said, he said, I don't want to make that mistake again. As governor, I want to make sure that in California, we have a way of identifying people early and that we are able to provide the kind of comprehensive care uh, that keeps them out of jail and keep ensures that they don't become homeless. And that care has to be um, continuous. It has to be compassionate. It has to be really comprehensive. Um, and and that's, I think, a large part of what you've seen over the last two or three years in California. Massive investments, massive commitments, um, particularly for people with those uh, kinds of serious mental illness. In Thomas Insel's book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, he outlines research about care that is needed for people to remain healthy beyond medication. Here he talks about the three Ps, people, place, and purpose. We've seen this over and over again, that people with mental illness often end up homeless. They end up in precarious environments where they don't eat well, they don't feel safe. Uh, they may be exposed to drugs of abuse uh, in that particular environment. So making sure that people are living someplace where they don't have the triggers, where they have an opportunity to thrive is just vital. And then, of course, 
the piece that we don't ever talk about in the healthcare system is, is the third P is purpose. Does somebody have a reason to get up every morning and something that they really are passionate about that they live for? One of the reasons that we uh, probably haven't done better in reducing suicide is because we so focus on making sure people don't kill themselves, but we don't actually focus on making sure they have a reason to live. And there are ways of getting at that. Uh, we, we know that there are a whole range of interventions that help people to connect, that help people to feel safe, that help people to find purpose. I've recently been promoting the idea of the clubhouse. Not a big deal in California, but pretty popular in other parts of the country. Uh, the clubhouse is a place where someone with, with severe mental illness will come every day be with other people with similar problems, and they will support each other. So they get the first P. They have a place to spend the day uh, from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. they got the second P. And they'll get job training. They'll get involved with um, projects that um, really do give them that sense of purpose. So they get all three Ps. Uh, clubhouses are fantastic um, as ways of helping people recover uh, but they're not paid for in the healthcare system. Uh, at least that's what I would have said until um, two days ago when the Department of Healthcare Services here in California announced that their intention is to make the clubhouses supported through Medicaid for the first time. So um, I do think there are solutions for giving people the three Ps. Uh, we just need to make sure that in this nation where we're spending $4.3 trillion for healthcare, that we allow those healthcare dollars to be used for these recovery services as well. And up until now, we have not done that. Mary St. Mary agrees that it's a combination of drug treatment, therapy, community support, and her work as an artist that helped her heal. Like I, I pretty much had to be self-sufficient in self-care. So I found writing stuff, picturing stuff, drawing stuff, really helpful reading tons of stuff so what i would say is i was very upset when they told me i had to be on meds yes because i was clean and sober and i'm like why did i get clean and sober to be taking meds and and doctor drugs were never my thing i was just kind of a tough little street urchin so like I called one of my oldest friends, Steve Tupper from Subterranean Records, and I said, I cannot believe this. They want me to take da-da-da and da-da-da, and they're for the bipolar. And he's like, take it. You need to take it. And I was like, what? I thought you of all people, super easy going. And he goes, I've seen you for, for years, decades. And he doesn't say things like girl, but if he did, it would be girl, get you some help. Like this is he. And actually he said, what if you had cancer? Would you take those meds? And I said, yep, probably. He goes, okay, it's the same thing. It's just, it's just in your brain. So when people take the time to explain the chemical imbalance going on in your brain and all this kind of stuff, it's helpful. And I would say, Getting a psychiatrist and just getting meds isn't the whole answer. It's a good beginning, but um, I never, ever felt so low as I did during that time. You need support. And so therapy, once a week therapy. So I've had that. I've been blessed with three wonderful women that, you know, 
really, really helps. So that's where you do the work, right? It's sad. I'm crying. <laughs> but, you know, it's you got to do the work. And I don't know what would have happened if this was approached when I was young. I have no idea because I'm not going back. Support is also needed for the families who face the hardship of caring for a loved one with mental illness. Here's where NAMI comes in. I went to support groups and I didn't say anything for a while. I just sat there and cried every single meeting, but it felt good to be around other people that understood what I was going through. It's, it's a big deal. Um, nobody talks about this system of care, about what happens. People keep it quiet. And so I didn't, I didn't know anything. And so just kept going to the support groups and going and then eventually st started sharing myself and, and um, yeah, and then it just kept growing and growing and I've never stopped coming to NAMI since then. No one tells you anything. The psychiatrist didn't talk to me. His therapist didn't talk to me. I started seeing a therapist because I was just beside myself. We had two, you know, small children. And um, my brother uh, out of state was in the mental health world. And he says, you know, you need to connect with your local NAMI chapter. And so I did. And like Marie, I just sat there and cried and didn't say hardly anything. Oh, gosh. For months and months and months and months and months. And finally, I had the courage uh, to ask the facilitator, so what's my role? And she says, you're going to become your husband's case manager. And oh my gosh, that's what I learned. Good things can happen too. Mm. And they might be really small things. Mm -hmm. But you have to look out for them. And that gives you hope. It was very incremental yeah. for yeah. getting better. And in NAMI... We say, you're not alone, because um, there's a lot of people out there just like us that are willing to help and support you and your family. You meet the best people. Lisa Daly, Executive Director of the Treatment Advocacy Center, describes other ways that citizens can be involved in mental health care reform. I would say on the personal level, the most important thing that you can do if you are walking down the street and you encounter a person who appears to be having a psychiatric crisis, just remember that that is a human being and that is a person who has not chosen to be in the, in the situation that they're in um, and to be as compassionate as possible. You know, if you have the opportunity to, to be kind, to, you know, be less likely to, to escalate a person's sense of distress, that is probably the best thing you can do at just the immediate individual level. Apart from that, in California, pay attention to what the Board of Supervisors is working on, is, is voting on. Definitely pay attention to whether or not services are being provided in the way that they're supposed to be provided. But then also at the state level, there's 
in California, a lot of emphasis right now on trying to solve the issue of getting care to some of the most uh, vulnerable. And this is obviously it's a big issue in the largest cities where you're seeing very, very large populations of people who are untreated on the street and and really increasingly everywhere in the world. You are seeing more and more people who are experiencing a psychiatric crisis in the public. So it's important to pay attention to what the laws that are being introduced. One of the important things to do is to recognize that lawmakers need to hear from their constituents to let them know that you support compassionate efforts to try to intervene. It's very easy to live in sort of an echo chamber where you're mostly hearing from the advocates about, you know, like, I, I'm completely against this kind of intervention on civil rights basis, or I'm only hearing from people who are proponents, but they're from the medical system or they're from law enforcement. And it's always important to remember that lawmakers are really in the position of representing their citizens in their districts. So it's important to hear from them. Uh, And for them to understand that, hey, as a Californian, I do believe that it's important to intervene with compassion and to make sure that the system is funded, that we have enough hospital beds. I mean, it's a big state and there's there's a lot of question as to, you know, what is the right thing to do with this population? What is the best way to help people? And if you have opinions about that, it's, you know, the best thing that you can do is to make sure that your opinion about it is heard by your elected representative. Being a part of incremental change in the system is what gives Ernesto Alvarado hope for a better system of care. And when I'm at work and in that car with my partner, I love what we do. I think it's a beautiful thing to have this opportunity to engage with someone in a really messed up situation and to try to be that catalyst to be like, to change. And not talking about like a you know, savior complex thing, just like change this little thing that you're doing to maybe see if there's someone else to that next step that can help you get a little closer. Mm -hmm. And then maybe from there, there'll be that next person to get you that next step. Because it's a long road. And and I always try to be transparent with folks. Like, this is is the beginning. Like, I spent a long time convincing a young kiddo to get out of their house, to basically willingly be placed on a hold to, to... to start the process. And I was really honest. I was just, this isn't the answer, but this might get you a little bit closer to that answer. And that's all I can offer. And, and going back to the psychosis, that's not enough for someone, you know, you, you're, you've, they've already done this several times. So you're, you are of no help. So now then you have to start thinking about what's the safest way to get this person in, in, Mm -hmm. in our patrol unit or at the hospital or at this place. Whereas someone who's starting over, it's like, I don't know which one is, Mm-hmm. I don't want to say sad because it, it limits it and puts that power in my hands of what I determine to be sad or not. You know, it's not my life. But it just makes me feel like overwhelmed for that human that they're now embarking in this system. And can we do better? Can there be different efficient models? Absolutely. But I'm not in that place to make them. I'm not a policymaker. I'm also not, I don't have the understanding to know what what makes that work, that program work. And so I try to criticize as minimal as possible. All I know is that what we have right now doesn't work. It can sound really critical and analytical and almost to the point where like, wow, that guy's really jaded. I'm not. I'm really hopeful. That's why I'm in it. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm starting this kind of new track at a time that I didn't really think I was going to be starting something new because I believe in it. I believe in the people that are doing it. And then I I think someone's going to come up with something 
that's going to work. It's just, it might just be on a grassroots level. It might be a community-based decision where community takes it on themselves in partnership with professionals that are, are forced to be involved in their lives. Or someone really cool is going to make policies that's going to make sense for everyone. I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't know what that answer is. I just figured that instead of just sitting around and waiting for that answer to be handed to me, maybe I'll try this thing and see if it works. If it doesn't work, well, okay. I'll be in a long line of things that didn't work, but you know what I mean? I mean, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm being honest, but, but at the other end of it, it's like, what if it does? Mary St. Mary agrees that it's important not to give up. Yeah. Some of the things where you're, you kind of look at it, especially if you're going through a really trying time, you cannot see what is this for? Why am I getting this lesson? What is it? And so somebody else once told me asking why is not a spiritual question. So, okay, I'm not asking why, but I'm just kind of like, really, universe, what you got for me now? Honestly, this is, this is tough. I don't like this. And eventually something will happen, and you're like, oh, my stars. If I hadn't done A, B, C, I wouldn't have been at uh, C, D, E, F, G over here for this magic. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, but... Yeah, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. And I'm not saying that in an in a evangelistic way. I'm just saying the miracle is that we can all kind of live with these kind of things going on in our heads and be cool. And uh, sometimes people catch you on the wrong day <laughs> and the full fury comes out. And I really, I had to really try to work on my anger because I was so super angry and it didn't serve me anymore. I mean, I'm up here in this beautiful place. What what am I going to be angry about? People are really sweet. They ask you how you're doing. They say, have a good day, you know? So yeah, this is a good place to heal for sure. But any place is. This is Allie Lightfoot for KVMR News. You can find this program, Getting Help, the State of Mental Health Care, and each of the interviews with our guests in their entirety at kvmr.org. Thanks for listening.